BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. We have got to take the steps that are necessary to get this under control. We're sounding the alarm now. We're taking these immediate steps with the hope that we'll start to see cases slow and then bend back down. But if, they, if not, um, then we're going to look at other measures. Hi, everybody. I'm Fran Spielman. My guest this week is the author of Chicago's Pandemic Budget, Mayor Lori Lightfoot. Mayor, welcome. Thanks for joining us. Oh, my pleasure. This is our 100th episode. You were the first guest on August 10th, 2018. And now here you are, the 100th, on October 22nd, 2020. There's poetry and symmetry there, huh? There probably is. I'm glad to be with you. Earlier this week, you sounded the alarm about a surge in coronavirus cases. You called it a second wave. You threatened to return Chicago to phase three, including a ban on indoor patrons at bars and restaurants. Now you're doing just that. What are you doing and why are you doing it? Well, look, I just think that um, we've seen a remarkable um, surge in cases. Um, We've seen a significant um, surge and our test positivity rate um, in just the last uh, week alone. And watching what's happening here in Chicago, around the rest of Illinois, and really across the world, um, we're seeing clearly the second surge that was predicted back in the spring. And I just think it's incumbent upon us uh, to start now taking the security measures that we must take uh, to try to mitigate um, this second surge and get our numbers back under in control. And I will tell you, one of the things that's most troubling to me is we're starting to see an uptick in hospitalizations. We're not at a crisis point there, but if we don't get ahead of it, that's always a lagging indicator, meaning people get sick and then they get sicker and then they go to the hospital. But we, every indicator that we follow closely um, is trending in the wrong direction, and we need to do uh, take some dramatic steps now uh, to get ahead of it. Why bars, though? Are they the source? Well, look, I think what we're seeing in the data is that it's coming from a lot of different sources. But what we know, and study after study has proven this, um, both here in the U.S. and across the world, that you've got to look at the places where people are most vulnerable, meaning where are they not wearing masks? And bars is obviously um, probably top of the list um, in every study uh, that I've seen uh, from public health experts. So we've got to be bold and, and take that step back. I recognize that that is a significant economic hardship um, on uh, the bar owners themselves, 
But these are places where people gather in mass without masks. And that's why it's critically important that we take this step regarding bars and then rolling back um, hours of operation also uh, for restaurants. You're rolling back the, uh, the hours of operations at restaurants as well then? That's correct. To 10 p.m.? That's right. That's going to be a huge hardship for restaurants. I mean, they are struggling. They are hanging on by a fingernail if they're open at all. I mean, some of them have closed already. No, look, this brings me, uh, this is tough. These are really, really tough um, things to do, particularly recognizing how dramatically our hospitality industry, our restaurants, um, our bars, our hotels have been really, really um, deeply, profoundly impacted uh, by the economic co- consequences of these COVID-19 shutdowns. Um, we've been working hand in glove uh, with these restaurants in particular, as well as other industries, uh, to really be a partner with them as much as we could, but being driven and dictated by uh, the public health metrics. I see no other way. If there was another way, we would choose it. Uh, but the, the measures that we're taking today are the first prudent steps, but I've got to be, be um, candid and say, I would not be shocked if we have to go even further, given this huge surge, the rate at which new cases are accelerating, the increases in hospitalizations and test positivity. We were right up against the state um, bar, which is 8%. We're at 7% today. <clears throat> 10 days ago, we were at 4.6%. So you can see a rapid increase in test positivity measures alone. We're going to we're very close uh, to hitting that state trigger that will um, compel even more dramatic steps. To what? Like you're going to close the lakefront again? Does that really have any impact now with the weather turning colder? No, I don't think we're looking at closing the lakefront. And, and I will say uh, one of the things that I've been most pleased about since we reopened the lakefront, I think people have gotten it. Um, They understood that they can't congregate, that they got to keep moving. Now, there have been some exceptions, um, and I've been very aggressive about about pointing them out and making sure that we correct that behavior. But I think by and large, people really miss the lakefront, and they understand how important it is for us to be able to keep the lakefront um, open. I don't see that as one of the measures that we'll take. Look, we're trying to be as surgical as we possibly can, but with this new outbreak, Um, As we indicated um, earlier this week, we're seeing this across every geography, every demographic, every age group. Um, And the primary areas are places where people feel like they're safe, but they're not. And they're not wearing masks. And so what would be next? What would be be next then? A ban on indoor service at restaurants, too? Well, I don't want to I don't want to speculate about what will be next. What I'm saying is that we have got to take the steps that are necessary to get this under control. We're sounding the alarm now. We're taking these immediate steps with the hope that we'll start to see cases slow and then bend back down. But if they, if not, um, then we're going to look at other measures. At the same time this surge is going on, you and school CEO Janice Jackson want to bring back to the classroom some of the most vulnerable students, preschool and special ed. How do you do that? Is that that safe now in light of this second surge? Look, 
keeping our kids safe is obviously always going to be our number one priority. There's no exceptions, no caveats. Keeping them safe is a top priority. But we need to start a conversation, which has started, about how we build a pathway to getting some of these students back. It's a, it's a question of equity. Um, for our youngest learners and for our diverse learners, remote learning is just not working for them. And yes, they're staying at home, but they're not learning in the way that we know that they could be if they were getting in-person instruction. And we've heard that over and over again, we've seen that across uh, school jurisdictions all across the country, a huge drop off for elementary school children, particularly uh, pre-K and, and kindergarten, and well as our diverse learners who go to school not just to get an education, but get a, a lot of support that they need in their lives uh, to be able to live fulfilled lives. So this equity issue is front and center for me, for Dr. Jackson, and everybody on the CPS team. Remote learning just doesn't work for some. So you still so think that can be done safely? You still think that can be sorry. done safely? I do think it can be done safely, and I know it can be. I'm looking at the examples of other school systems here in Chicago that have been open for in-person learning, whether on a hybrid basis or full-time, since September. The Archdiocese is probably the closest example. They're in the same neighborhoods that our schools are in. Um, they're, they're educating um, uh, the same kids that we educate. Now, it's not an apples-to-apples -apples complete uh, comparison, but there's a lot that we can learn from them. Over the course of the summer, the parks were open. My daughter went to a park district program, um, and they did a very good job of keeping kids safe. The same with um, the private sector uh, pre-K uh, schools. They've been open all summer, all fall, since they could be open, and they're doing a good job as well. And so the precautions that we're taking in the buildings with um, uh, um, temperature checks, uh, separating out classes, um, not having everybody congregate in the hallways and cafeterias, a number of things that we know work. Um, and I think Dr. Artie has said as well that across the studies that have been done across the world and here in the United States, schools are just not the, the source of big COVID spreads. They're not. Now, can we guarantee a completely risk-free uh, environment? There is no such thing in the world today. Nowhere is risk-free. Your home is not risk-free. But can we and will we do everything possible to make sure that our young people are safe and particularly those uh, for whom re remote learning isn't working. Now, we don't know where we're going to be um, in mid-November, um, but obviously we're going to be guided by the public health metrics first and foremost. Nine of 14 NFL games last weekend had fans in the stands, including the Bears game in Carolina. Why can't that be done at Soldier Field? Well, look, I've um, spent some time um, talking to uh, the Bears and leadership, uh, the NFL, um, I think that they've got a good plan in place. Um, I feel comfortable with it. But again, we've got to do it at a time uh, where we see our health metrics trending in a very different dire um, direction. I hope that we can get there. You know, I'm a, I'm a, a multi-decade Bears fan. Um, and it is different watching it remotely than being in the, in the stadium. And as I said, I think they've got a good plan uh, to keep people safe. But the public health metrics right now, um, I think, are 
uh, very challenging for us to initiate uh, fans in the stadium. I hope we'll get there uh, before the season is over um, and uh, before it gets too cold. Uh, but now is not the time. And I think they understand that and agree. So the good plan is what? Well, they've got, I don't want to go into all the details, but, you know, I, the lawyer that I am, I asked them, how, what's the plan for uh, uh, ingress? How are we going to minimize um, uh, crowds at um, the security checkpoints? Uh, what happens once the fans are in the stands? How will they go to bathrooms and get concessions? And then, of course, what happens uh, when uh, we exit? How are you going to do that in a way? And really, their plan starts from the moment that fans uh, pull up uh, in uh, the parking lot, and they've got the, the people who enter um, in different sections. Uh, they've got the stadium divided up. Um, and I think it's a I think it's a good plan, but I won't give any more details at this point. You delivered your bad news budget in a mostly empty city council chambers this week. How eerie was that? Well, you know, in some ways, it really felt good to be back in chambers. Um, but obviously, we weren't there with members of the city council. Um, we did have um, some members of my team uh, that were. Uh, in the uh, in attendance, particularly the the finance team, but you know I'd like to get to a place where we start um, having in-person uh, meetings and hearings and and city council meetings. Um, we're working. Um, AIS has been working on a plan for some time about how we can um, bring the city council uh, back in the chambers and do it safely from a social distancing standpoint. But all ultimately, it's got to be members' comfort and. Even when we come back, and, I, and I'm confident that we will, there are going to be some members um, who opt out, and that's going to be perfectly fine. In the chambers or in some larger venue? Well, we're looking at um, in, the, in the chambers, uh, but we also have looked at um, other options as well. Like United Center, McCormick Place, <laughs> where? Uh, you, trust? You, you missed your calling as a lawyer, Fran. Um, I'm not going to talk about the, the places that we've looked at, but obviously we've looked at a number of large venues um, across the city um, that could accommodate um, the members of the council, um, staff, the press, uh, if people are willing to come back, and obviously uh, members of the public as well. In some ways, it might have been a good thing that the aldermen weren't there. The reaction has not been good. One of the big points of well, contention I, I don't know. I don't, I don't know. I'm going to push back on that, Fran. Um, I followed the coverage yesterday pretty closely. Uh, the predictable ones said the predictable things, but I think by and large, um, at least uh, what I saw reported across a lot of different media outlets is people are realistic that when you're looking at a $1.2 billion um, budget deficit, um, there aren't a lot of good options and there just aren't. And we've spent a lot of time uh, with members of the council and we'll continue to do that, really walking through um, in detail um, what needs to be done. Um, but we think that this um, is a plan, given the circumstances, um, that's a solid plan. Nobody wants to make uh, these kinds of calls, and least of all me, but leaders stand up in a time of crisis. And that's what we need the city council to do um, in this very difficult budget. We're, we're open to ideas. We've been soliciting ideas uh, for revenue and other uh, efficiencies and savings um, since um, late summer. 
And many of the things that have been proposed by the members are actually reflected um, in this budget. But there's no magic wand that we can wave to, to make a $1.2 billion deficit disappear uh, without some pain and some hard choices. One of the big points of contention, as you might expect, is the $94 million property tax increase and the annual cost of living increases going forward. You call this modest, but for a business owner struggling to stay open after the stay-at-home shutdown or a homeowner struggling to pay the property tax bill that they already have, there is no such thing as modest. Well, I, I call it modest in part because um, some people were predicting a property tax increase of historic levels, multiple hundreds of millions of dollars. And obviously we took a lot of other steps uh, before we got to um, what I believe is always the last um, option, which is property taxes. And we worked hard to minimize the impact on homeowners. And if you look at um, what the um, average home uh, value is in Chicago, which is $250,000, that results in a $56 increase over their existing um, um, uh, property taxes. So nobody wants to pay more in taxes. We know that. We see it in poll after poll, anecdotally. Nobody likes more taxes, and I absolutely get it. Um, but as a homeowner in Chicago myself, I understand that times you need to make sacrifices. Um, the, the, and this is one of those times. And as I said, uh, property tax increase is always a last resort but we are in a kind of pandemic budget um, crisis uh, where we had to use all the tools in our toolbox to be able to close this gap. And then there, there is your plan to refinance $1.7 billion in general obligation and sales tax securitization bonds. By taking advantage of lower interest rates, you hope to save $448 million this year and $501 million dollars next year. But let's be honest, this is scoop and toss. This is the very thing that Wall Street rating agencies railed about and Rahm Emanuel finally ended, although not soon enough for them. It's a one-time fix. How responsible yeah. is that to well, resettle in, in, a generation of, of taxpayers with debt? We, we spent a lot of time uh, with the rating agencies and looking at a range of different scenarios all of which included some measure of borrowing. Um, and we got, I think, very positive feedback, uh, candid feedback uh, from the rating agencies. But absolutely, we've been very transparent about uh, this $501 million uh, borrowing is a scoop and toss. It's a one-time measure. We've worked really hard uh, to focus on structural fixes. Uh, and even in this very difficult budget, we still do have um, some structural uh, fixes to um, our budget deficit, but given the size of this hole, um, there absolutely were going to need to be some one-time measures, um, and this is one of them. And yes, of course, uh, we want to take advantage of the lower interest rates. We'd be foolish not to try to refinance the debt, given that the interest rates are at historic lows. We did that um, at the beginning of this year. We had estimated for 2020 that the savings would be uh, 20, uh, 200 million. We ended up getting $300 million in savings that we um, used to apply to um, close the gap for, for 2020. But given the, given the circumstances that we're in, which is a pandemic budget with a historically high uh, deficit for next year, and the opportunity to refinance our debt at a cheaper level, 
uh, which will actually inure to the benefit of taxpayers, of course we're going to take advantage of that opportunity. Whatever happened to your graduated real estate transfer tax on high-end home sales? You, your last budget assumed the General Assembly would pass that to the tune of $50 million last year and $100 million next year, and yet you dropped it. Why did you drop no, it? And we, we, how, haven't, how, we haven't dropped it. We haven't dropped it, but it's still uh, because of the vagaries of uh, the statutory regime, it still requires uh, the General Assembly um, to authorize the Chicago City Council to consider it, um, and we will be coming back. Obviously, the General Assembly's spring session wasn't what anybody had anticipated. There wasn't much time or room to do much of anything. We did get the huge win uh, in the General Assembly spring session by getting um, a restructured tax rate for Chicago Casino, uh, but there's, we have a ambitious um, Springfield agenda, and real estate uh, transfer tax is still on it. So you're going to go after that in the fall, are you? No, I, I think the fall, you know, we keep hearing different things about, A, whether there will be a veto session, and if there is a veto session, how long will it be and what will be the agenda? I don't think the opportunity uh, will be there for our ambitious agenda um, on a number of different items in the fall veto session, assuming it happens. Uh, I think the time for that uh, will be in the spring session. And what will you use the money for if you get it? There's a lot, there's a lot of needs, Fran. Um, obviously, uh, we've made a commitment that we will dedicate some of those resources um, to homelessness prevention. Um, although homelessness prevention got a huge um, shot in the arm uh, from CARES Act funding um, this year. But obviously, uh, we have a lot of needs um, across the board uh, that we would use um, such a structural uh, fix for um, and um, we'll uh, apply it um, as needed, but right now, uh, I don't want to get ahead of ourselves. We don't have those funds in hand, uh, but we're going to be working towards trying to get them. Chicago still has a $30 billion pension crisis. The four funds have assets to meet just 23% of their liabilities. What is your solution to that? <clears throat> well, number one, we've got to keep making meeting our obligations, but I think everybody recognizes that we need to bring all the relevant stakeholders back together and not a moment too soon uh, to talk about specific um, structural fixes so that we can stabilize uh, the future of the pension funds, make good on our promises um, to our workers, uh, but do it in a way that will, will, will win long-term sustainability. We're not on a path of long-term st uh, stability now, and we need to bring everybody to the table from the electeds, of course, uh, our friends in organized labor, and come up with um, some solutions. What I'm asking for is that that conversation actually begin in earnest so that we can work together um, towards concrete solutions. Are you talking about getting rid of the automatic cost of living increase? Yeah, I'm, I'm not going to negotiate what those um, solutions are here in the media. I think that's unfair um, to uh, the workers and to organized labor and all the other stakeholders. But what I am saying is this is a call to action. This path that we're on is simply not sustainable. You know the numbers and the dire um, circumstances of every single one of these pension funds where they're now in a position where they're selling off assets to be able to meet their monthly obligations. Uh, we can't ignore that dire circumstances any longer. So what is the financing source? If you get some structural fixes from the labor, what, what is the financing source for these pension funds? 
Well, again, I think there's a range of options, but I'm not going to negotiate um, here uh, on your show or in the media. I don't think that's appropriate. You're eliminating 618 vacancies in the police department at a time when officers are retiring at a record pace. It's only expected to pick up after the contract is finally settled. And we saw Rahm Emanuel in his first budget eliminate 1,400 police vacancies. That set Chicago in a very downward spiral. He had to rely on runaway overtime and eventually crime spiked and he reversed course and he started hiring 1,000 cops. Aren't you on that same path? No, not at all. Here's, there's, a, there's a lot of fundamental differences between this administration and the prior one. And on this issue, um, there's a lot of differences. And here's a key one. We have worked over the course of this last year to actually put officers back on the streets. We reorganized so we, the department. Hold on, let me, let, me, let me finish this point. We reorganized the department. Uh, we have pushed people out of administrative positions and put them back in the districts on the front lines. Literally hundreds of officers have gone back on the street, more to come uh, through creation of the uh, uh, Office of Public Safety Administration and through the reorg. That didn't happen previously. We've done it, um, and that's important. So while we have taken vacancies, we've also put more officers back on the street. My view is when you uh, decide you want to be the police, you got to be the police, not a secretary, not somebody's driver. You got to be the police. The University of Chicago Crime Lab is now studying how the police department can more efficiently deploy cops in the 22 districts. The study is expected to be done by the end of the year. Will you take that information and do what your predecessors have refused to do, and that is reallocate police officers to high crime districts and remove them from the districts where crime is lowest? Well, look, deployments are all about that, and it's not a static thing. Um, the the um, hot spots um, in the areas of need um, are very fluid. And now there are some traditional trends um, and data um, shows us that, but we're all about making sure that we are meeting the immediate needs um, in neighborhoods across the city. That's why Superintendent Brown stood up um, a, <clears throat> a citywide uh, mobile uh, team um, that meet the needs of uh, city um, residents across areas of the south and the west side, but also on the north side where we see these spikes in violence. We've got to have the flexibility to be able to move where the crime is. We've got to maintain um, some levels um, of protections in the district, but we also have, the flex have to have the flexibility to move when we see crime patterns um, emerging, and that's precisely uh, what this new deployment model is all about. And again, why it's been so essential to make sure that we are pushing people into the districts, breaking down these specialized units that aren't aiding in the crime fight and making sure that we're doing everything that we can to continue the hard work of building relationships uh, with uh, members of the community. I made the comment in my budget speech about tag team officers, the so-called jump out boys, now having to do a community service project um, every week. Everyone has to be connected to the communities that are most in need of police resources. And we do it through um, having 
people in, uh, that are present, but also building those relationships. That is a true crime-fighting strategy. And then we layer that with providing other community support through mental health, uh, through violence prevention and street outreach, uh, through affordable housing, through job um, pipelines and workforce development. So we've got to have that entire ecosystem up and running. Um, and the police department, obviously, is a critical part of that. The firefighters contract that you hammered out mm-hmm. expires in June. The Civic Federation has urged you to finally eliminate the minimum staffing rule that requires every piece of fire apparatus to be staffed at least by five employees and to reconcile the number of firehouses with a dramatic decline in fires and an increase in ambulance calls. Will you do that? Will you take that on? Um, We've already taken that on. That's not a new topic for this administration. And uh, we've had very candid conversation about Local 2. Uh, We've shared with them the calls for service data uh, where, as you've noted, uh, most of the calls are for EMT um, and medical emergencies and less and less for fire. And let's give fire um, department the credit where credit is due. We've seen that dramatic job drop in fires in part because of the hard work that our our brave men and women in the fire department have done over the years um, in educating the public about measures that they must take uh, to keep their homes safe from fires, uh, passing out free smoke detectors, carbon monoxide, um, but also um, really the fire department has been on the front lines and urging changes in uh, the building code um, that we use so that we use materials <clears throat> that are safer. Now, having said that, obviously we need to address uh, the minimum manning issue, and that will be part of the discussion in the next round of negotiations with Local 2. I have a great deal of respect uh, for our firefighters, for our EMTs and our paramedics. I have a great deal of respect uh, for that union, um, but they understand that this is an issue that we must take on. So the minimum staffing of five Mm -hmm. needs to go down to yeah, again, I'm not going to negotiate. I'm here. Three? I'm not going to negotiate. I'm not going to negotiate on your show, um, but the topic of minimum manning is something that we've been talking about uh, for some time now. It's not a surprise or secret uh, to local two, and it will definitely be on the table when we resume negotiations next year. And the number of firehouses as well. Um, I've, I've gone as far as I'm going to go in talking about local two negotiations. The fire commissioner, Charles Ford, is just a few months away from mandatory retirement age of 63. You've got to start looking for a new commissioner. Will you choose an insider or might it better be better to go outside, given the contentious nature of the negotiations that might be ahead? Well, well, first of all, I want to correct. Uh, his name is Richard Ford, the, the, uh, the, the second. Um, I'm sorry. Richard, sorry about that. Okay. I don't know where Rich, I got Rich that. Ford has been, Rich Ford has been a great leader of the fire department. I met him um, several years back um, when we were working on some um, issues that brought us into contact. Um, there's, you're not gonna find a more thoughtful and conscientious leader. Um, he really deeply cares about the men and women of the fire department. Um, and it's been re- a real privilege uh, to get to know him over these uh, last uh, 18 months. Um, I'm very well aware of his retirement date and the mandatory retirement date. Um, and um, at the appropriate time, we will announce a, um, I think, a, a smooth transition uh, to the next leader of the fire department who really is worthy of 
um, leading um, one of the best fire departments in the country. An insider, outsider, who? Time will, time will tell. The Civic Federation has also asked you to take aim at the three men on a garbage truck or three employees on a garbage truck. In the suburbs, they do it with one person who also drives the truck. Why not? Why not do at least less, fewer well, structural as, as, as you As you know, um, a budget is not a way in which you negotiate collective bargaining agreements. Um, those collective bargaining agreements that affect uh, the streets and sand workers um, expire in 2022, although we will start the negotiation on next year and try to get them done uh, before the contracts themselves expire. And everything will be um, on the table, including uh, the staffing of the garbage trucks. I'm well aware of um, what other localities in the area um, and across the country um, have done. Um, the place that I go to um, every year for our summer vacation, there's one guy in a truck. You got a truck that um, has two different um, pods to it. You've got an electronic arm. It reaches out, takes the garbage, puts it in the garbage area, takes the recycling, puts it in the recycling area. One person of it staffs that truck. So we've got to look realistically about what makes sense for Chicago, um, but that is something that we will definitely uh, be taking a look at. So the sacred cows are gonna be tackled. Listen, we're, we're living in a world where there can't be sacred cows, right? We're living in a world where everything that we know um, from before has been upended by a pandemic. Uh, we're in one of the uh, most uh, difficult um, economic environments that we've experienced, certainly in my lifetime, um, and probably since the Great Depression uh, back in the early uh, 1930s. Um, we've got to think creatively and boldly about how it is that we continue to deliver services to our residents, but do it in a way that is fiscally responsible uh, and that makes uh, takes advantage of a lot of different efficiencies. As I said yesterday in my budget speech, um, our work on 2021 budget is not going to end with the passage of the budget itself. There's a lot of other work that needs to be done in looking at how we can make city government more responsive to the needs of our residents and make city government work efficiently. I think we've made great strides um, over these, this last year and a half, um, particularly around areas of risk management, but there's a lot more that we can be done. And you know me well enough by now, I don't like taking the path of least resistance on any issue. And I'm not afraid of being bold and challenging us to get out of our comfort zone, all of us, me included. And so um, we are going to be looking at ways in which we can make city government a, a government that we can all be proud of that works uh, for our modern times. Have you given up on your promise to end all demonic prerogative over zoning, which must be done by ordinance? <clears throat> um, I, I think that we've got to look at lots of different ways in which we can make um, our zoning process more efficient and, and, and business friend, friendly. I still hear a number of complaints about businesses that are really struggling. They want to open up in Chicago. They want to employ. They want to make, um, uh, they want to um, develop a footprint here, but they are just challenged by 50 different sets of rules. It is a significant issue. And so um, I know that this causes people discomfort, but if we are continually being viewed as a city that is absolutely not business friendly, that we have way too many hurdles, 
that your the rules of of engagement are different and one part of the city or another based solely upon um, who the local alderman is, that is not a good thing for Chicago. Businesses have lots of options, lots of options on where they're going to invest their capital, their resources, and their employees. We are fighting. Can, do it, can you do it in a way that doesn't require a city council vote you might lose? I think we have to do it in concert with city council. We always have to do things in concert with city council. I'm not worried about losing votes. That, that's what that's what you care about. That's not what I'm worried about. I'm worried about doing the right thing because it's the right thing to do. And the right thing to do here is to have a serious conversation, um, certainly with the members of the zoning committee, but really with the entire city council and think about how we can make sure that we are living our values, uh, but not sending a message to the business community, take your business elsewhere because Chicago is not open for business. And that's what I fear. Before we let you go, Mayor, Joe Ferguson's term expires next year. Will you reappoint him or has he earned another term or is it time for a change and maybe some fresh eyes? Well, Joe Ferguson has been in office for a really long time. And I think he's to be commended uh, for um, the really good and hard work uh, that he and his team have done from investigations, but particularly um, the auditing work. Um, but you know, I'm somebody who favors term limits. Um, and I don't think that people should stay in office um, indefinitely. Um, I don't think that that's good for, for them, and I don't think it's good for the organization uh, that they lead. Um, August, uh, when his term is up, is a, feels like a thousand years from now. So um, there's a lot that will happen between now and then, and we'll have a conversation uh, with, with Joe and, 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 and obviously commemorate um, and highlight uh, the good work that has been done over his tenure um, as um, IG. But that's not um, a priority uh, consideration for me right now. And what was your reaction when you read that salacious lawsuit filed by Cynthia Donald mm -hmm. against Eddie Johnson? Surely you knew that this was a relationship. A lot of people at the police department knew about it. It's why you demanded that she be reassigned off his detail, right? Um, I, well, look, uh, given that there's a pending lawsuit, um, I'm not going to get into any of the particulars. I will just say um, there's a lot that will come out, I think, as this lawsuit makes its way through the courts that I think will put um, a lot of the things that she said <clears throat> in um, a, I think, very different light. Um, but I will say this, because um, literally some of your colleagues in the media said, did the mayor know that Eddie Johnson was allegedly doing X, Y, or Z. <clears throat> and I just think to myself, really? Common sense. Let's just, let's just do a common sense check. Would somebody who was <clears throat> actually in, in being engaged in criminal acts as a leader of the police department tell their boss, not the least of which is somebody like me, a former prosecutor, that they were on a regular basis committing crimes. Does that make any sense to you? It doesn't make sense. You knew, uh, I'm not talking about committing crimes like a rape in his office. I'm talking about an, uh, carrying on a relationship with his bodyguard. You knew that, right? Well, I, I, I'm not going to say, I, 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 I made the decision to um, fire Eddie Johnson because he repeatedly lied to me about the circumstances related to um, that night. Uh, that he was clearly out with Cynthia Donald and drinking. 
um, so much so that he fell asleep for two hours uh, and then put a lot of different um, hardworking and good police officers in an impossible situation. And not only did he lie to me, he lied to the public. He manufactured a press, state, a press conference uh, where he told a story that was completely fabricated. And I believe that leaders have to lead. And one of the ways in which we lead is by our virtues and by our integrity. And he failed spectacularly on that, in that regard. And for those reasons, which I was very transparent about last December when I fired him, those are the reasons why um, he was walked out the door and no longer was able to serve as the superintendent of the police. You can't, if you lose your moral authority, as he clearly did, um, there's no way that you could be a leader. But this puts Rahm Emanuel's decision to reject the results of your nationwide search and then change the rules to choose Eddie Johnson, who didn't even apply for the job. It puts it in a whole new light. This one's on him, doesn't it? Isn't it on Rahm Emanuel, really? Shouldn't he have done more due diligence about who Eddie Johnson really was? Well, I don't think it's productive to relitigate that decision. Um, the decision is the mayor's decision, but the decision is the mayor's decision, which means you own it. Um, and there's a lot that we learned um, that led up to uh, my decision to terminate Eddie Johnson. There's a lot that's been learned since um, about leadership, about values, about culture. Um, and I'm assuming at some point, um, many of those stories will actually come into the public view. But what I'm focused on right now is my current superintendent, David Johnson, who by the way, it's his birthday. David Brown. David Brown. Yeah, sorry, I said David. I made a mistake. <laughs> okay, now we're even. Even flip. David. David <laughs> Brown. And today um, is his birthday. So let's wish him a happy birthday. Let's wish every um, man and woman in the police department um, safe uh, passage today on their watch, and that they make it home uh, safe. Mayor, thank you so much for joining us on this, on this our 100th episode. I hope we uh, have you on before 200. <laughs> I, I'm, sure, uh, I'm sure that will happen. And Fran, as always, you're well prepared. I appreciate your uh, professionalism. It's always a pleasure. Okay, thanks for joining us, and we will see you all next week.